All right, Jude chapter 1. We're going to cover one whole verse today. What do you think of that? I mean, it could be worse. It could be a half a verse. We're going to cover a whole verse. The title of the message is Uprooted. Jude 1.12. These. I'll remind you of who these are in just a moment. These are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Just more warm, fuzzy feelings from good old Jude. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, anointed by you, filled with your spirit, to write this little one-chapter book for the New Testament. Lord, bless our time and your word today as we dissect this verse. Teach us, feed us, lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. They, these. These and they. These, we met these guys already in this book of Jude. These are those who creep in. They've crept in, the creeps. And then Jude goes on, as you remember from last week, to refer to them as brute beasts. The creepy brute beasts, these are the ones that Jude is warning us about. He goes on to describe them. Jude's going to make sure that no one is unclear or unsure about who and what these people are. So he goes on, he says, they are spots in your love feasts. We talked about love feasts during the communion time. The word could also be translated blemishes. These are blemishes. So these creeps, these brute beasts, these deceivers were polluting and tainting the fellowship meals in their local churches by their very presence because they were wolves in sheep's clothing, if you will. The uh, Greek word is spalatis. It means stains. I'm very familiar with stains. I don't know how many of you men out there are. I should be carrying around an adult bib with me. I haven't yet to start that practice, but the quickest way to make sure you get a stain on your shirt is to wear a white shirt. Right? Now, maybe it's just because you don't see the stains on the dark shirts. But to be sure, and it's usually the last bite of the meal. I don't know about you guys. I can get all the way through and then go that one last bite. <laughs> there it goes. Break out the shout. Shout it out. But a stain is not a pleasant thing, is it? A stain is something that shouldn't be there. A stain is something that ruins the garment, the piece of fabric, whatever it is. Spilates, the verb form is espalamanon, espalamanon, there you go, don't try that at home. Espalamanon, which means stained. That's used in verse 23. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled or stained by the flesh. It's talking about ways to save people from destruction 
We'll get to that later, obviously, in the chapter. Spilates, stains. Espalamanon, stained. And in staining others by their presence, they stained themselves as well. So these love feasts, or also known as fellowship meals, were eaten in connection with the Lord's Supper. And we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about a man examining himself before he partakes so that he doesn't partake in an unworthy manner. And these creepy brutes were doing that as well, partaking of the communion at the love feast, but not doing so in a worthy manner because they weren't examining themselves. We talked about the fact that they were full of pride, hypocrisy, and so forth thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to. And oftentimes they have the ability and the effect of making those around them feel inferior, unspiritual. You ever been around somebody like that? Again, that's a dead giveaway. Somebody who's walking in true humility before the Lord will not make you feel condemned. They won't make you feel inferior. They won't make you feel less spiritual. But these folks thrive on that kind of stuff. So I mentioned our modern day equivalent might be the potluck. We don't usually have communion at our potlucks, but we could very well at some point have communion and then have a potluck afterwards, and that would be very similar to what they were doing there. Notice a very important phrase here. While they feast with you without fear. I understand this to mean I think there's probably multiple applications here, but I zeroed in on this one. Without fear of God's judgment. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul also talks about the fact if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged with the world. God expects us to practice self-examination to avoid judgment, to avoid chastisement. These guys had no fear of any of that. The Proverbs... In fact, the whole Bible is just full of massive numbers of verses with this phrase, the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How many of you desire to have wisdom? We all should. And James, in his first chapter of his book of James, tells us that if we lack wisdom, if any man lack wisdom, he should ask God and God will give it to you. God promises wisdom to those who ask Him, those who have relationship with Him. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to be in awe of Him, to respect Him, to recognize Him for who He truly is, the Creator of all things, the master of the universe, as Jesus said, don't fear the one who can destroy your body. Fear the one who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. God is the ultimate authority over life and death. To fear him is to acknowledge all of this. It means to think so highly of him that you would do everything possible not to offend him not for fear that he's going to destroy you in hell, because if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's no longer an issue. But as a believer, 
we should have fear of breaking God's heart, right? Disappointing Him, disobeying Him, hindering His plan for our lives. This is all about fearing the Lord, not because He's some big ogre, but because He is worthy of our honor, our respect. And the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We can't hope to ever obtain wisdom unless we have a healthy fear of the Lord. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. There's another aspect of fearing the Lord. If you have a fear of God, you will hate evil. We talk often about how God loves the sinner, but He hates the sin. And then along those same lines as believers, we should hate what God hates and we should love what God loves. God hates sin. Here it says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If you love evil, that shows you don't have a fear of the Lord. Because the Lord deals very harshly with evil. And you might say, well, gosh, I see evil around me all the time and God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Well, that doesn't mean He's not going to. And in fact, I know often we would like to see immediate judgment, immediate retribution, immediate vengeance. But keep in mind, God operates outside of time and space. God is eternal. He's the great I am, not the great I was or the great I will be. The scariest thought is that rather than God dealing with a situation here and now, that He deals with it in eternity. In fact, we should pray for people that they would come to repentance so that they won't be dealt with in eternity. Because to be dealt with in eternity means separated from God forever. But we often, human beings, mistake a lack of action on God's part for the fact that He's okay with it, He doesn't care, you can get away with whatever you want. And clearly in Galatians 6 it says, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And you say, well, I don't get it. Some of the most evil, wicked people I, I know of are the, the wealthiest, the healthiest, and so forth. Yeah, but what about eternity? That's the whole ballgame. Eternity is the whole ballgame. All right, Proverbs 10.27. The fear of the Lord prolongs days. Isn't that interesting? But the years of the wicked will be shortened. Now there's an expression that was immortalized in a Billy Joel song, only the good die young. You know about that one? That's not what the Bible says. It says the wicked die young. Those who fear the Lord, the Lord will prolong their days. But the years of the wicked will be shortened. That makes sense, doesn't it? If someone is walking uprightly before the Lord, if they're, they're living in a healthy fear of the Lord, keep them here. Let them be a witness. Let them be an influence. But if they're wicked and they refuse to change their ways, if they refuse to repent, then the planet's honestly probably better off without them. Does that sound too harsh? That's what the Bible says, basically. And you can look at many, many people. And again, many people who have been wealthy, famous, powerful. You know, there's this... Uh, I think it's a, the 28-year-old club or something like that with Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, Blind Owl from the Canned Heat group. There's a whole long list of rock musicians who all died at age 28. 
from drug overdoses and alcohol and so forth. Look at Elvis Presley, died at 42 years of age. There's a long list of those people. We call them wicked because they refuse to repent and follow God. None of us are perfect. We're all sinners saved by grace. The difference between the wicked and the righteous is whether or not you put your sins under the blood of Christ or not. And sadly, some of these people grew up in the church, started off singing gospel music and so forth, but they traded their soul for rock and roll or various other things. Fame, fortune, power. The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. And honestly, there's even oftentimes a marked difference in physical appearance between someone who's walked with God for a long period of time and someone who has not. Sin takes its toll on your body, your soul, and your spirit. One of the telltale signs, I believe, of someone who does not truly know God is that they possess no fear of the Lord. Think about that. They may claim to know Him. They might claim to be a believer, but if they have no fear of the Lord, in other words, no care whatsoever of the potential consequences of their actions, they think they can get away with anything in Jesus' name. That's a dead giveaway. Pardon the expression. And so James goes on here, or Jude rather. I'll keep wanting to call Jude James. I don't know why. But James was a half-brother of Jesus too. Anyway, he says they are shepherds who feed only themselves. That's not a new phenomenon by any means. Think about it. A shepherd who feeds only him or herself. If a shepherd fed only themselves, the flock would soon die out, would it not? Jeremiah 23.1, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Ezekiel 34.1-2, The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, interesting, that's also what Jesus is referred to in the New Testament, the Son of man, Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Why would you prophesy against the shepherds? Well, we'll find out here. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Obvious answer, yes. So this is the exact opposite of the mandate that Jesus gave for those who would assume the position of, quote, shepherd in the church. John 10, 11 through 13, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, one who's only in it for the money or whatever benefit they can get, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, who owns us as sheep? Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, you've been bought with a price, you're not your own. He who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. And so, often, though, how often pastors like me who uh, maybe name names of people that we believe are not teaching correct doctrine, we get slammed. I mentioned my Google review. It's criticized for being critical of Rick Warren and uh, Joel Osteen. 
But see, the, the good shepherd doesn't run from the wolves. The good shepherd confronts the wolves because he's protecting the sheep, you see? I don't take it lightly. I don't go out of my way to look for people to criticize. But if I see someone that it's fairly obvious that they are doing harm to the name of Christ, the body of Christ, leading people astray, then I'm going to say something. Because I want to be like Jesus. Jesus called people out, didn't he? Called out the Pharisees, called them a brood of vipers. Called them whitened sepulchers, empty tombs. Sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. John 21, 17, Jesus is having his conversation with Peter. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. So he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Wow, Lord, how many times do I have to answer you? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What was the number one commission given to Peter by Jesus? As Jesus was preparing to depart, return to heaven, leave the apostles to make disciples of all men, planting churches, Feed my sheep. The good shepherd feeds the sheep. The bad shepherd does not feed the sheep. The bad shepherd feeds only himself. So these brute beasts, as Jude refers to them, were poisoning the sheep with false teaching and false doctrine. So even when they did feed them, they were feeding them that which would kill them, serving only themselves. And again, this flies in the face of the teachings of Christ. Matthew 9.35, he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, remember how they were always uh, jockeying for position? John and Peter had an ongoing competition. They even had a foot race to, to the empty tomb of Christ. you remember that? They wanted to see who could get there first. <laughs> and then, when Jesus was having that conversation with Peter, John was kind of hovering over in the distance trying to see what he could see and hear. And Peter's receiving this commission from Jesus. He sees John over there and he says, well, what about that guy? And Jesus says, that's none of your business, basically, to paraphrase it. You, you follow me. You keep your eyes on me. And so then there was also uh, John and James, the sons of thunder. Lord, you want us to nuke that town? Remember those guys? But then when it came time to seek a position, see, James and John wanted to be seated at the left and the right hand of Christ when he came into his kingdom. Can you imagine asking something like that? And yet I've seen people do things similar. But when it came time to asking for that special position, they sent their mommy. Mom? Would you please ask Jesus if we could sit at his left and his right hand? Yeah, sons of thunder. My foot. 
Anyway, serving only themselves. Jesus told the 12, if anyone desires to be first, and probably we know that at the very least, Peter, James, and John sitting there all desired to be first. Maybe some of the other guys too. Judas probably. And so he tells them, if anybody desires to be first, any of you 12, a number of them knew who, just, who he was talking to, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That's the model and the example of leadership that Christ gives us, the exact opposite of these creepy brutes, serving only themselves. Now keep in mind, here Mark 10.44, whoever of you desires to be first shall be, wow, slave of all. So you could ask a group of people, who would like to go first? Oh, I will, I will. Okay, then you get to be the slave of all. Oh, never mind. Never mind. Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. Never mind. For you old timers out there. <laughs> Keep in mind, I just read two verses from the Gospel of Mark about being the servant of all, the slave of all. Keep in mind, this is Peter's Gospel as told by Mark. That's what we believe. Mark got the bulk of his information for his gospel from Peter. John 13, 3 through 9. Remember this story at the Last Supper. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Well, think about this. is just before the crucifixion. And yet John says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. He's about to be crucified by wicked men. Jesus was always and always is in control. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. And that he had come from God and was going to God. So Jesus knew exactly where he was going. Therefore, he had no fear of what man could do to him. He had no fear of their torment, their torture, or their crucifixion. Because he knew that ultimately he was going back to the Father. Live and well. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. So he took off his outer garment. He's down to a 2,000-year-ago Bible time version of his undergarments. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. Simon Peter, who just told us, quoted the words of Christ, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all, slave of all. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Mr. No Lord himself. That Peter, I'll tell you. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Jesus here is performing the act of a slave, of a servant. The lowliest servant of the household was the one who was given the task of washing the feet of the guests. It's a pretty dirty job, pretty nasty job. What if the guest has toe fungus? toe jam and there's Jesus doing that act of a humble servant Peter said oh no you're not doing that to me Jesus okay then you have no part with me 
Well, Peter, one thing about Peter, he was rash, he was impertinent, he was petulant, but he could straighten up on a dime. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Uh, Peter, I wasn't really planning on giving you a bath, a sponge bath. Just want to wash your feet. I want to humble myself. I want to show you the example of servant leadership. So Peter learned his lesson that night. That's why he could write about these things in his gospel, in his epistles. Serving only themselves. They are clouds without water. Now, waterless clouds may look nice. I, you know, I don't remember all the various names of the clouds, you know, the cumulus and the nimbus and all that. Santa Maria. Nina Pinta Santa. But waterless clouds may look nice, but they fail to provide the moisture desperately needed to sustain life, do they not? We know all about that in the southwest. We have some beautiful skies, some beautiful clouds, and often even the ones that appear to have moisture tend to disappoint, do they not? And particularly prior to modern irrigation, people all over the world relied upon rain clouds for the sustaining of life to water their crops, to provide drinking water. Oftentimes the water, the groundwater was poisonous or polluted, undrinkable. They would gra- gather rainwater and rain barrels and that could be utilized as drinking water, but not if there's no water in those clouds. So waterless clouds is a big deal. And in the Bible, water, rain, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. These guys were providing no spiritual moisture, sustenance to the people they were claiming to teach, to lead. You've probably noticed, particularly in contrast to where we live, the most lush, fruitful land is found where there are lots of clouds with moisture, right? My wife and I were just watching a movie that took place in Ireland. And the countryside was just amazing. But it's also a place that gets a lot of rain, right? We've gotten used to not getting rain. But, again, barring modern irrigation, rain was the only way to sustain life. Jesus promised us living water. So here's the spiritual analogy. John 4, 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Remember the woman at the well? The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up, spring up, oh well, then my soul springing up into everlasting life. And so this is the contrast that Jude is giving us here. These men are waterless clouds. No life, no sustenance, no Holy Spirit. John seven thirty seven through 39, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Obviously, he's not speaking literally about water. 
He's speaking about living water, the Holy Spirit. He, he who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Remember, he said, I have to go so that I can send you another counselor, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. This is the living water, the Spirit of God living inside of us. What's Jude telling us? These men didn't have the Holy Spirit. They weren't true believers. They came in. They crept in. They were at the love feasts. They were hanging out. They were misleading people, deceiving people, trying to divide the body of Christ. But they weren't really believers. And then he says these waterless clouds, these creepy brutes, carried about by the winds. Have you ever seen those fast-moving clouds? Isn't that a mind-blower? You can literally see them moving. Now, again, I'm not a um, meteorologist. My suspicion, and I, I could be wrong. I, if I am, let me know if any of you guys... But it seems to me that a waterless cloud is going to move faster than a cloud with moisture in it. There's no weight there. It's just waterless clouds just drifting, tossed about by the wind. And that ties directly in with Ephesians 4, 11 through 15. He himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. And that's my job as a pastor teacher, to equip you, to teach you, to train you, so that you guys can minister to one another. For the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Spiritual growth and maturity. That's my responsibility to impart that to you guys. Of course, you have to play a part in that as well. That we should no longer be children. And here's where it ties right in with these clouds carried about by the winds. Listen to this. So... In Ephesians, Paul is telling us that to be childlike as a believer. We talk about baby Christians. We've talked about this before. Baby in a diaper, very cute. 30-year-old in the diaper, not so cute. That would cause concern. What was that guy that used to walk up and down Central in a, in a loincloth? Remember that guy? Not so cute. Don't want to see it. Don't want to go there. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. There it is. To be a baby believer, to not be mature, to not be growing up in the faith. And these guys were tossed about by the wind, these empty clouds. And, and th this is what they do. They're always coming up with some new fad doctrine. The latest and the greatest, right? keep people's attention, to draw people to themselves. And it needs to be somewhat sensational, right? Uh, we used to joke around when we were down on, by the uh, stadium there, Milne Stadium, near Roosevelt Park at the old Mormon church built back in the 1930s. We were there on Hazeldine. We, used to, we were going through a study. I'm trying to remember what book it was. 
But there was a lot of stuff in it about suffering. And we made a joke, said, let's put up a banner. Come suffer with us at Calvary Chapel Southeast. We were Southeast then. How many people think would be drawn by a banner like that? (laughs) And yet the New Testament is full of stuff about how in Christ we will experience suffering. Did Jesus suffer? Oh, but not me. I'm not going to do that. I'm the king's kid. I'm going to name it and claim it and blab it and grab it. Hallelujah. Can you see Jesus acting like that? Do you think that makes him want to puke? I think it does. In the book of Revelation, he talks about puking. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. No, the Bible does teach that we will have sufferings in Christ. It's not all going to be a Sunday picnic. It's not all going to be a tiptoe through the tulips. Peaches and cream, peaches and herb. (laughs) Yep, there's some oldies out there, baby. There's some oldies out there. I like it. Let's grow old together. Better to grow old together than to apart. It's like that old saying, we will either... Hang together or hang separately, right? I'd rather hang together, wouldn't you? And grow old together in Jesus. Wow, that is so important. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So much of the church today fits right into this description. I've observed it over the years. Well, after we get tired of slaying in the Spirit, I guess we'll laugh in the Spirit for a while, you know? Every wind of doctrine now is beginning to include things like, well, actually, the Bible does not teach against homosexuality. That's a misapplication, misinterpretation, misunderstanding of Scripture. You're seeing that more and more. Actually, the Bible doesn't teach that you have to be married to have relations with your significant other. That's archaic and outdated. Uh, There are many twists on this every wind of doctrine stuff. But the point is, when and this is a problem, I mentioned this before, because whenever man comes up with something that it proves beneficial to the human race, there's always a downside. With your drugs, there are side effects, right? Now, if you have psoriasis, you need to take this, but your liver might fall out, your eyeballs might explode. (laughs) But they say it so fast, you can't really understand what they're saying, right? So you have one potential positive benefit and about 50 ones that could kill you. And then you have your anti-anxiety drugs and so forth. Oh, but you might become suicidal. What? It's supposed to take away my anxiety, but it's going to make me suicidal? What's wrong with that picture, right? Whenever man comes up with something that appears to be beneficial, there's usually more negative benefits than positive ones. And so it is with our modern technology, communications, TV, satellites, internet, and so forth. It now gives people the opportunity to listen to a gazillion different so-called Bible teachers all day long, and a lot of people do that. A lot of people have replaced going to church physically like this with listening to people on the internet, right, YouTube. We put stuff on there because we want to get God's Word out. The problem is, if you're listening to a gazillion different teachers with a gazillion different doctrines, 
at the end of the day, what are you going to believe? Are you one of those who's tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine? I've seen it. I've often asked myself, how does someone go from a solid Bible-teaching church? We're not the only one. I don't claim that. But I've watched this happen, where they'll jump right from a place where the Word of God really is being rightly divided, if you will, properly taught, and they'll go somewhere over here where they're out to lunch, and they don't even bat an eye. What does that tell you? What does that person really know? What do they really believe? What do they really care about? Emotions, feelings, experience, or truth? Now, I don't know, but Joe Biden said we believe, what did he say, facts over the truth? I thought they were the same thing. I don't know, maybe Joe Biden's tossed about by every wind of doctrine. He's tossed about by something. God bless him. I mean that. God bless him. He needs it. Tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By, how? By the trickery of men. Hello? Now, I admit, I, 1 Corinthians 13, love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. So I have a tendency, although probably less now than I used to, of being somewhat naive, somewhat gullible, and I do believe to an extent we are to take our brothers and sisters in Christ at face value, at their word. But at the same time, Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. I think this is where the wisest serpents and as gentle as doves comes in. You know, I don't go around looking for a demon under every bush, looking for a false teacher behind every pulpit. But we have to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves how does this being tossed about, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine happen? By the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, in contrast, speaking the truth in love, you see, if we leave out the love part, then it becomes harsh, hard to receive. But if we leave out the truth part, it's just mush. It's just ooey-gooey, warm, fuzzy feelings. Jesus told the Pharisees, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the truth of God's Word. We need the truth. We need the love. We need the whole package. But it's much easier to draw a crowd and get people on your side when you just focus on the power Ooh, hallelujah. And you focus on the love. But the truth can be, make people uncomfortable, can it not? It's kind of like, I just had to have some blood drawn the other day. And, um, well, usually I get a pretty good stick. This girl kind of hurt me. I was all ready to be tough. And when she stuck me, I went, Ow! I wasn't used to that. Most of these ladies at the blood lab are pretty good. Sometimes you don't even know it goes in. She hurt me. There used to be a football player in the XFL called He Hurt Me. But this time, she hurt me. But here's the deal. 
I want to know the truth about all the stuff going on in my body, right? The blood work, the lipid panel, the, you know, the glucose, the whole nine yards. And so sometimes the truth hurts. This time it hurt. But I'm going to get the truth. I'm going to get my results. I'll see where I stand. It's been pretty good last few times. Blood work. The truth hurts. But wouldn't you rather know the truth? I mean, uh, if you've got a serious affliction, it kind of would be good to know, wouldn't it? So you can treat it. You can deal with it. Truth hurts, but we need the truth. We need the truth and the love. We need the power and the scriptures. Speaking the truth and love may grow up in all things into him who's the head, Christ. If you want to grow up, if you want to be a mature believer, and that's what God wants for us. Again, it's really embarrassing to him when you're still, you've been a believer 10, 20, 30, 40 years and you're still running around in your spiritual diapers. Okay, and then he calls them. He's not done yet. Late autumn trees without fruit. You know what that looks like, don't you? A tree in the autumn. First you have the gathering of the fruit. Then you have all, the late autumn, all the leaves fall off. Any fruit that didn't get picked, it's just little tiny shriveled up dry things, right? Nothing you would want. So, a tree in the autumn without a, out fruit appears to be dead, or in some cases actually is dead, it has the appearance of death. The fruit's all been picked. The leaves are falling off. Whatever fruit remains is dried up. So he likens them unto late autumn trees without fruit. Maybe they never bore any fruit. And so he calls them twice dead. There's that old expression, born once. How many of you here have been born once? Just, okay, just once for now. You wouldn't be here if you weren't, right? Born once, die twice. Jesus said you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual birth. It's a second birth. But what if that never happens? What if you only have physical birth? Born once, die twice. Born twice? How many of you have been born twice? Guess what? Die once. And then you live forever. Is that good? I think that's good. So these guys are twice dead, which means they're really dead, pulled up by the roots. A fruitless tree is uprooted, that is uprooted, is dead forever, right? Twice dead. It died, now we've uprooted it. It's twice dead. The dead condition of apostate leaders was indicated by two things. They did not bear spiritual fruit in others. We're talking about apostate leaders here. They didn't bear fruit in others, and they were without spiritual roots themselves, and so they faced judgment. John 15, 5 and 6. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, lives in me, stays with me, connected to me, and I in him bears much fruit. So this is a challenge for every one of us. I know we're saved by grace for, through faith. We're not saved by works. But Jesus says, if you're connected to me, then you will bear much fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Without me, he says, you can do nothing. I've shared before, my life first God gave me is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you put it on a coin, this verse would be on the other side of the coin. 
Without me, you can do nothing. One side of the coin, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The other side, without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. This sounds like the creepy brutes that Jude is talking about. Uprooted, pulled up by the roots, twice dead. Once again, as we finish this verse today, we're being reminded of the importance of not just a one-time commitment. How many of you remember my good friend Brian Davis, Pastor Brian Davis? He and I go round and round about this. He's even talked about here, this here in our church, that um, the Word, Jesus is the Word, which He is, but the Word of God. The Scriptures are also the Word, but we get into these little semantic gymnastics, but I love the guy, right? Another thing that bugs him is this idea of an altar call of people coming forward and accepting Christ. I understand why. I think it's important. You need to make a public commitment to Christ. You need to stand up in front of one or more people and say, yes, I want to know God. I want to follow Christ. I, I did it early on in my life. I think a public profession of faith is important. But I know where Brian's coming from because it's not just about a one-time praying of a sinner's prayer. It's the beginning of a new life in Christ. It's a daily walk with God. A lot of people think, hey, I went, up, I went forward 20 years ago. I'm good to go. What have you done since? Are you growing in Christ? Are you following Christ? Are you abiding? Well, no, not really, but that's okay. Once saved, always saved. Really? I don't know. Let me know what you find out when you get there. We've been reminded again this morning of the importance. Now, these guys apparently were never in Christ, and they are uprooted. But we need to be abiding, living, staying, connected, remaining in Christ. Matthew 24, 13. He who endures, it could be she, he is just generic. Don't get all bent out of shape. We're no, there's no gender shaming going on here. He or she who endures to the end shall be saved. Endurance, abiding, living, staying, remaining, vitally important. It's a day-by-day Walk with God. Next week, Jude 1.13. Jude's not letting up on these guys, I'm telling you. They are wild waves of the sea. And we're not talking surf and safari here, okay? Foaming up their shame, wandering stars. Wow. For whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Let's stand. Father God, Wow, what a power-packed verse. So much there for us, Lord. Help us to take this seriously. Take it to heart. Lord, important things that we talked about today, the fear of the Lord. How important to have the proper respect for you, to be in awe of you, to be in wonder of you. You are wonderful. You're amazing. You're almighty God, the creator of all things, the master of the universe. Lord, help us never to take you for granted. Lord Jesus, it's so wonderful that you've called us your friends. We love that, being called a friend of God. But help us not to be presumptuous. Help us not to take that for granted. And help us to be ever humble before you. Because you promised, Lord, if we would humble ourselves before you, that in due season you would lift us up, you would exalt us. Lord, whenever and however that happens, that's up to you. We're just 
to be, remain humble before you as your humble servants. Lord, we pray this very day that you would help us to continue to endure, to persevere, to stay connected, to abide in Christ because you promised that those who endure to the end will be saved. Help us to not be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, but to stay rooted and grounded firmly in the truth of your word. Lord, we pray for anyone today that might need to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, anyone who might need to rededicate their life to you, Lord, anyone who might need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, anyone who might need healing. Draw them by your Spirit that they would come today and receive that ministry of the Holy Spirit as we close with one final worship song. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.